can turn in your Bibles, put your thumb in at least, Ephesians 5. You have an outline there before you. And uh, we find ourselves back in Ephesians 5. We were, we were doing a little series here over the summer, marriage and family series, um, God's design for marriage and family. And so we want to uh, take time now. We've looked at marriage the first week and how God instituted that. And now, uh, then we looked at wives, uh, basically the, the duty and delights of a godly wife is what, what our series was on the wives, the, the biblical view of a, of a woman's role, a wife's role in a marriage. And um, if you weren't here for that, ladies, I'll just give you a quick review. <laughs> just six things that we pointed out, lest you, know, you feel slighted today at all, because we are going to be primarily talking about the men, but I thought, well, I'd just revisit this. First of all, we looked at, at the, uh, the first and primary delight of a godly wife is that of submission. It tells us that in um, Ephesians 5 and Titus 2, and not in a, uh, a way that is um, not honoring to you or, or to the Lord even. It's the same kind of submission that we're called to submit to one another in Christ, but we're also called to submit to Christ as believers. And so your role is one very Christ-like, and so it's one of submission and submission to your husband as the leader. And then we looked at love and sensibility, uh, purity, uh, being a worker at home. And lastly, we looked at kindness. And we talked about how those six um, duties of a, of a godly woman are really paired up. You have submission and love, you have sensibility and um, purity, and then you have a worker at home in kindness. And, you know, as we, we talked about that last week, you know, I was, I was talking about a worker at home, and I, and I mentioned, Ken mentioned this to me after the service, and lest anybody get a wrong idea, I used the word despot. That's really what, in the Greek, that's what that word means. You're, you're, you're ruling over your home. And I guess in our language today, that connotates a lot of negative ideas, and that's not the, 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 the word at all, okay? It doesn't mean that you're a dictator in your home unless you walked away last week thinking, hey, I like what the pastor said today, you know? Husband, you need to submit to me. No, that's not what I was saying. I was just saying you, you kind of, as, a, as a, a godly woman, you... You're called to be a worker at home. Your first and primary um, duty is to your household. And the reason that is because usually the husband is out working, okay? And so someone has to oversee that. And so that's what that meant. And so I just wanted to make sure that you understood I wasn't saying you were a dictator in the negative sense, but you are an overseer of all that goes on in the home. Well, as I was studying this week, you know, it's, it's August here, and, and I grew up back in Pennsylvania, and I remember, um, you know, I only played football in high school two years, and then I went and got a job, because I wasn't really as good as my brothers, and I was always being compared to them, and I said, you know, this isn't, I, I didn't really have the competitive nature to play sports, and so, you know, I tried it for two years, but I remember they had this, this time, this practice in the fall, in the, the end of the summer in August, and they called it Hell Week, and it was two weeks and that's what it was. It was hell on earth. It was horrible. Because in Pennsylvania, it was usually, you know, 85, 95 degrees. Humidity was like 100%. It was just horrible. And you had these pads on. You're out there muddling in the dirt and the grime and everything. 
And I remember just as you're going over these drills over and over and over, just trying to condition your body. I remember the coach would always tell us, no pain, no gain, you know. And I'm just thinking, oh, my goodness. You know, it's a little overkill, I think. But, um, you know, in that, that statement, no pain, no gain, gentlemen, is one that we probably understand. You know, we've probably been to the gym. We've probably played sports. We've probably done something where we understand that what it means to have um, gain without pain, that's impossible. If there's no pain, then there's not going to be any gain. And, you know, when you, when you stop and you, you think that there is, there's truth in that statement, um, there's a lot of information that we're going to look at today here in Ephesians 5. And, you know, as I went through this passage this last week, it was kind of painful as I studied for it. Because it's kind of like, wow, okay, i got to get up and preach on this on Sunday and my wife's going to be sitting in the front row. <laughs> this is not going to be easy, <laughs> okay, by any means. And I had to get over the idea that somehow I had to be the perfect husband or I couldn't preach on this. A lot of preachers think that, and that's not true. You know, we're not called to, I mean, we're, we're called to live the word and, and, and the message that we preach as much as we can, but we're not perfect. And so a lot of times the enemy uses our inadequacies and our failures to almost uh, disarm us. Like, we can't ever say anything to anybody unless we're perfect little Christians. And so that's just not the case for any of us, especially as men. And so as I've gone through this passage, there was some pain involved. As I looked at my own marriage, I looked at my own um, uh, ability to love my wife the way Christ loves the church and how much I fall short in that. Um, and I'm confident, man, you all feel the same way this morning. And uh, you will feel my pain. Before we're done, I guarantee you. Uh, but have you ever noticed when people take pictures, they take a photograph? Uh, sometimes, you know, now you can do it all the time with iPads and iPhones and everything, you know, oh, get a selfie or whatever. And usually you end up taking three or four. You know, I don't like that one. That, that doesn't look like, that doesn't look right. You know, and if it's, if it's not that flattering of a picture, you want to take it over, right? And somehow you think in your mind, that somehow it's going to miraculously change what you really look like. Because, I mean, the picture is who you are, right? I mean, you can't get around that. It's just the way it is. And so, you know, unless the, the camera's out of focus or something like that, um, it looks exactly like us at that given time in the history of our life. And that's the problem. We don't like what we see. And see, sometimes it's not very flattering the image comes back, and we look at it, and we go, wow, I remember the first time I saw a video of me doing a wedding, and I was watching this video, and I was actually squinting at the screen because I'm like, who is that guy? I mean, when he puts his head down, you just see this, you know, this glimmer of light shining off the top of it, and that's when I had hair, by the way. And, and I began, I realized, wow. I, I don't have any, I don't have a lot of hair on the top of my head and I'm starting to do this thing, you know, with the kind of the bozo, the clown thing around the ears. And I, I, I don't want that. So I went home and I shaved my head and I've been shaving my head ever since. Why? Because I didn't like the picture that I saw of myself. It wasn't very flattering. Well, when you look at Ephesians chapter five, we're told that there's an image that each one of our marriages make. There's an image. It's making constantly. 
It's as if someone took a camera and, and set out to take a picture of Christ and the church and their relationship. And when the print is processed, the image comes back. And it's a picture of you and your spouse. That's really what this text is saying. Now, it may be a very poor image (laughs) of Christ and the church, depending on the condition of your marriage, but it's an image nonetheless. Douglas Wilson wrote a book called Reforming Marriage, and he says this in this book, and I thought it was, it was good. It speaks of this passage in Ephesians 5. He says, in this passage in Ephesians, Paul tells us that husbands and their role as head provide a picture of Christ and the church. Every marriage, everywhere in the world, is a picture of Christ and the church. Because of sin and rebellion, Many of these pictures are slanderous lies concerning Christ. And he gives some examples. He says, but, as a, but, a, but a husband can never stop talking about Christ and the church. He says, if he is obedient to God, he is preaching the truth. If he does not love his wife, he is speaking apostasy and lies. But he is always talking. If he deserts his wife, he is saying, this is the way that Christ deserts his bride, which is clearly a lie. If he is harsh with his wife, he is saying that Christ is harsh with the church, another lie. If he sleeps with another woman, he is an adulterer and a blasphemer blasphemer as well. How could Christ love someone other than his own bride, you have to ask yourself. It's astonishing how For a few moments of pleasure, faithless men can bring themselves to slander the faithfulness of Christ in such a way. See, our marriages, men, are specifically our our relationship with our, our wife is a picture. It's a picture. Whether you like the picture or not, it's still a picture. It's either a good picture with the correct image or it's a terribly flawed, out of focus picture. But it's always a picture. And as I've come to this text these last couple weeks, I come very convicted, very deeply convicted in my own personal heart. Um, I realized that I could never live up to the standard that this text tells us we should live up to. I realized that. But you know what? As God is my witness, by his grace, it's my intention to pursue it. Even though I'm never going to get there, this side of glory, I'm still going to pursue it. And my challenge, I think, the next two teaching times, I'd say weeks, but I'm going to be gone for a week, so the next two teaching times, men, is that you join me in this pursuit. You know, I don't know the current state of your marriage. I don't know exactly where it's at, whether it's honoring to the Lord, whether it's not whether there's challenges or whether it's just all blessings, I don't know. I don't know what kind of husband you are when you leave this campus. I don't know what kind of image you're portraying to Christ, of, of Christ. But I urge you, I plead with you on behalf of Christ, if you're a believer in him, to understand the goal and to get on the path to pursuing it. Well, 
here in Ephesians 3, in verse 23, we're told very clearly, guess what? You're the leader in your home. Men are the leader in their homes. It says in verse 23, the husband is what? Is the head of the wife. Now, I know for the ladies, we went over this before when we talked about submission. This isn't a feeling thing. It isn't a dishonoring thing. It's a, it's a role that you're called to play irregardless. But, but husbands, you need to understand you're called to lead irregardless. Husbands are the head of their wives. Notice it doesn't say there the husbands ought to be the head of the wife. Paul doesn't say that. He just states a bold fact. You are the head of your wife. And that is the way that that God has built his universe. That's the way he made marriage. You're the leader, men. You're leading. Now, you may be a good leader or you may be a poor leader. But that doesn't change the fact that you're the leader. You may be active in trying to lead your family, or you may be totally walked away from your responsibility and pursued your own selfish agenda. But in the sight of God, listen, you bear the responsibility of that home. You. You're the leader. And you know what? When there's problems in your marriage or in your home, you may not bear all the guilt of those problems, but in the sight of God, listen, you bear complete responsibility. You bear complete responsibility. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I have a nephew who's, he's a two-star admiral in the Navy, and over the course of his career, he's taken over several commands, and I'll never forget when he took over command of the USS Louisiana, the sub that he was the captain of for three years, It was in disarray, complete disarray. And within the first week of his command, they had a horrible issue on the boat to the point where they actually had to delay leaving port for about a week. Um, It was a big deal. He was brand new to that command. He had nothing to do with this situation. You know, the, the crew had just gotten to a point where they were in disarray, and he came in, and now he was their new leader. Well, guess what? When that incident happened, whose responsibility was it? It wasn't the guy that just left. It was my nephew's. It fell on his shoulders because he was the captain of the boat. It didn't matter that he had never trained these men. He didn't even know these men. It was irrelevant. Ultimately, it was still his responsibility, even though he was brand new to that command. See, that's how it works with God. Husbands and fathers are ultimately responsible for everything that happens in the the sphere of their responsibility. So we're leaders, like it or not. That's just the plain truth. And God will hold us accountable for the kind of leaders that we are. Now in Ephesians 5, we learn exactly what that godly leadership toward our wives should look like. And let's read, I'll read, and you can follow along in verse 25 of Ephesians 5, down to uh, 33 there. So it's beginning in Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The bottom line in this important passage for us to understand, men, is Christians, Christian husbands are to pattern their love for their wives after Christ's love for his church. That's the pattern. That's the template that we're applying to our love for our wives. Now, wives, as I said before, you have to admit, when you look at your role, one of submitting to your husband's authority that's pretty simple compared to this. It really is. And let me explain. I mean, you're required to respond to your husband as all of us are required to respond to Christ. If you're a Christian, the human response of believers to Christ is what? Is to submit to his lordship. That's what we're called to do. That's what you're called to do to your husband's. But the husband, men, we are called not just to submit to Christ, but we are called to model Christ himself. To be Christ to our wives. To play the role of Christ in loving our wives. I mean, that's just an incredible responsibility. It's a very daunting task. And so the key question that's answered in our text here in Ephesians 5 is simply this. In what ways is our love for our wives to be Christ, to be like Christ's love for his church? In what ways is our love for our wives to be like Christ's love for his church? I mean, when you think of Christ's love, what do you think of? Christ's love was perfect. It was perfect. It was without flaw. John 13, 1 says that Jesus loved his disciples to the end. Literally, that means completely, ultimately, perfectly. He loved them. I fall short. We can never love our wives that way. But what we can do is we can demonstrate the same kind of love. If not the same intensity to our lives, to our wives that Christ demonstrated to His church. So we're going to see five essential qualities. Five essential qualities. We'll look at these over the next couple of weeks of the kind of love that Christian men should have for their wives. And remember, this is a reflection of Christ's love for His church. So the five essential qualities. Now this morning we're just going to look at two of them, and then we'll finish it up with the three later. So first of all, here. We see in our text, Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. The first quality is really talking about the motive of our love. Where does this motivation come to love our wives in such a way it comes from Christ? Because it's a Christ-like love. This 
This word in the original language here refers to the love of God, a self-sacrificial love. The love of God that's in 1 John 4, 8, where he says anyone who does not, uh, who does not love does not know God because God is what? God is love. Or over in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. A sacrificial love. Or even in Ephesians 5.22, the love that the Holy Spirit produces. It says the fruit of the Spirit is what? Is love. Joy, peace, patience, so forth. See, when Christ came to earth in human form, you have to remember this. He knew that he came to be mocked. It wasn't a surprise to him. He knew that he came to be ridiculed and maligned and rejected. He, he knew all that because he was God. He knew everything. It wasn't a surprise. He knew that he would be beaten, that he would be rejected and eventually crucified by even those who loved him. He knew from eternity past that he would be demanded to do all these things. That he would be able to provide a way of salvation. He gave up his prerogatives as God's son. I mean, Jesus wasn't just, you know, some son of a carpenter. He was God. In the flesh. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8 tells us this speaking of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. We refer to that as the kenosis by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then it says, even death on a cross. I mean, it's one thing to die, but to die on a cross, that's horrendous. And because his sacrifice was determined in heaven, the Bible tells us before any of us were ever even created, before a soul was ever even created, this was all determined beforehand. And because every created soul became sinful in Adam's fall, and only worthy of death, the Bible says, Jesus' sacrifice for us was purely a sacrifice of grace. He knew what was going to be the outcome. And Jesus loves and saves because it's his character to be gracious. In Romans seven or Romans five, verses seven to eight, Paul says this for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet what? Sinners, Christ died for us. True Christianity is one of the only religions, really, that says, you know what? You don't have to clean yourself up. As a matter of fact, you can't clean yourself up enough for God to love you. It's got to come from his grace. It's not a result of works, lest any man should boast. 
John MacArthur in his commentary on Ephesians says this, Jesus' love for his church not only was sacrificial, but graciously sacrificial. No person deserves to be saved, to be forgiven, to be cleansed, and placed within God's kingdom as his own child. He sacrificed not for the lovely or worthy, but for the unlovely and the unworthy. The world's love is always object-oriented. We know that to be true, right? We're always fixated on objects. A person is loved because of their physical attractiveness or maybe their personality or their wit or humor or prestige or some other positive characteristic. In other words, the world loves those whom it deems worthy of love. The problem with that is such love is very fickle. (laughs) As soon as the person loses that positive characteristic that you love so much, guess what? You don't love that person anymore. It's because so many Husbands and wives only have that kind of fickle love. They don't have a biblical love. That's why their marriages fall apart. Because they're, they're, they're based on what the other person can do for them. And as soon as the, the partner loses his or her appeal, well then guess what? They think the love is gone because the basis for the love is gone. See, God's love is not of that kind. He loves because it's his nature to love. Because he created us. And as objects of his creation, we need his love. He doesn't love us because we're attractive. He doesn't love us because we deserve it. If God loved as the world loves, he could not love a single human being. But in his marvelous graciousness, he loves because he cannot do otherwise. It's within his character. So husbands, when we love our wives, we're called to love her with a Christ-like love. A Christ-like love. That's the goal. That's what we're shooting for. That's not always going to happen. But that's where grace comes in. That's where humility comes in. We'll look at the second quality of a godly husband's love for his wife here, and that's a sacrificial love. Not just a Christ-like love, but a sacrificial love. He says there in verse 25, love your wives. And by the way, that's a command That's an imperative. That means that has to happen. It's a command to you to love your wife. It's not an option. Husband, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Alexander Strzok wrote this in his book. He says, tragically, some Christian men think that headship means dictatorship or lordship, them being the boss. Thus, the Christian... Doctrine of headship has been misused to justify the physical and mental abuse of women, keeping women in their place, demeaning and controlling women, working wives to death and simply neglecting them. Christian husbands who abuse or neglect their wives, he says, 
don't understand authentic Christian marriage. They don't understand loving servant leadership. And they certainly don't understand Ephesians 5, he says. See, we've been influenced in our role as husbands by our own upbringing. Every one of us has, has a history. Perhaps we had fathers who weren't the best models of what a Christian husband should be. Maybe we've been influenced by the culture in which we live or by the people we work with. We've seen other people, how they respond to their wives. And we say, well, that's okay. I guess everybody else is doing that. We've been influenced by everything except God's word, to be honest with you. John Piper said this. He said, the husband who plops himself in front of the TV and orders his wife around like a slave has abandoned Christ for Archie Bunker. (laughs) All in the family, Archie Bunker. Maybe some of you don't know who that is, but do the research. Probably one of the most politically incorrect shows that was ever on TV. But that's exactly right. He's bought into the culture. You bought into the lies of the culture as to your role and your responsibility to your wives, what that should be. What's Christ say? Christ says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. I mean, that's an extraordinary command to us as men. It's totally counter-culture. And it was the same way in the first century as it is today, by the way. It was no different back then. It's not like men rolled up their sleeves and said, oh, this looks fun. Yeah, I think I'll just be the... No. In the Greek and Roman world, it was understood that women had obligations to their husbands, but not vice versa. Marcius Cato, he was a second century Roman politician. Now this is in the hundreds of A.D., okay, so way long time ago. He wrote this. He says, if you catch your wife in the act of infidelity, you can kill her without a trial. But if she were to catch you, she would not venture to touch you with her finger because she has no rights. So lopsided, so wrong. See, that was the mindset of the typical man in the first and second centuries when all this was going down. And so here it is in Paul's context when he's writing this. He comes along and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I mean, that was a revolutionary command to these people. So Paul addresses it to the men, specifically the men who are currently married, by the way, who the husbands, he says. But it really applies to all men, except those who believe maybe they have the gift of celibacy. So he says, husbands, love your wives. So first of all, we see here that it's an imperative. It's a command. Now, there's many implications here, but let's just share a couple implications of this command to us. The first implication is that no husband is exempt from this directive for any reason. None of us can offer an excuse why we don't do this, why we don't love our wives this way. He writes to all husbands in the Ephesus, 
everybody hearing the letter in the church. He says, husbands, love your wives. None of you are exempt. You know, when you do a lot of counseling, you you run into a lot of excuses that people offer. And, you know, some of them are, are, are just real pretty flimsy. You're telling the husband, you know, you need to lead, you need to love your wife, and they offer excuses. Things like, well, you know, well, you don't know my wife. It doesn't matter. God does. And the command still applies. God didn't leave them out of the clause here. He says, love your wives. Another excuse is, well, you know what? The woman I'd marry to today is not the woman I married blankety blank years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it is. It's not the same woman. Well, who is she then? What do you mean she's not the same woman? I mean, maybe, yeah, your spouse has changed over the years. We all change, don't we? Sometimes the grandkids look at our wedding photos and they, Grandpa, you had hair, you know. Grandpa, you were thin. (laughs) But that doesn't let us off the hook here. I've heard men say this. Well, you know, I love my wife, but she just doesn't submit to me the way she should. (laughs) She does whatever she wants. Okay, ask yourself this question. You mean Christ loves you because of the quality of your submission to him? (laughs) I don't think so. I've heard men say of their wives, well, you know what, I just don't find her attractive anymore. Ask yourself this question, is that why Christ loves you? Because you're attractive? (laughs) But I think the most common excuse is this my wife doesn't love me my wife doesn't love me or we just don't love each other anymore so i'm not under any obligation anymore to love her in first john 4 11 john wrote this beloved if god so loved us we also ought to love one another Later in verse 19 of the same chapter, he says this, we love because what? God first loved us. Because Christ loved us, we should love him. And others, by the way, including our own wives. But there's another important point here in this verse, and I want you to get it. If there's a lack of love in our homes, guess what, men? It's our problem. It's not your wife's problem. It's our problem. That's kind of humiliating. We're responsible, remember? We're the leaders of our homes. Because just as Christ, because just as the church, as we respond to the first love of Christ, we are responsible in our homes to be Christ and to be the one loving. And our wives 
respond to our, wa- or to our love. So if, if she doesn't love you, first and foremost, it's your failure as a husband. There's no acceptable excuses. God says, husbands, love your wives. It's a clear command. Nobody's exempt from that. Well, the other implication is simply of the, of the fact that it's a command is simply that we, we do have the capacity to do this. I've heard some men say, oh, there's no way we could ever do this, so I'm just going to give up and not even try. God is telling us, look, by the grace that was given to you in Christ, you can do this. You can be loving to your wife as Christ loved the church. Now, you may not do it 100% perfectly all the time because no human being has the capacity to love with the divine fullness and perfection in which Christ loved and will forever love the church. But a Christian has what? Christ's own nature, the Bible says. A Christian possesses the Holy Spirit within them. So God provides for husbands to love their wives with a measure of Christ's own kind of love. It comes from without them. And the key is this. As the husband submits to the lordship of Christ and is filled with the Spirit, he is able to love his wife with the same kind of love that Jesus had for his own bride, has for his own bride, the church. And so the Lord's pattern for love for his church is the husband's pattern for the love for his wife. Well, third implication here, and this is a very important one, of the very fact that God commands us to do this, to love it means that true biblical love begins and is sustained not by feelings and emotion, but by a deliberate act of our will. Now, you know, I'm not a big touchy-feely kind of guy, but there is an emotion in love. There's an emotions, there's feelings in any relationship. See, we're commanded to love God with all of our being, with every fiber of our being. That includes, right, our emotions. (laughs) We are to love other people in that same way as well, the Bible says. But the fact that God commands us to love means that love begins with and continually is sustained by a deliberate act of our own will, a choice to love. You and I can choose to love whomever we choose to love. The most obvious example of this is when a young couple decides maybe they can't have children, they decide to adopt a child. They don't know that child. They have no connection to that child at all. They have no blood relationship to that child, and yet they choose to take that child into their home, and from the first day that child comes home, what choice do they make? They choose to love that child as their own. And to treat that child just as they were their own child, even though they were adopted. And see, we can do the same with our wives. We can choose to love our wives in a Christ-like manner. Every husband is commanded to constantly 
love his wife. And we're all commanded to love, not just husbands. We're all commanded to love. We're commanded to love our neighbors. We're commanded to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus even said we're commanded to love our enemies, for goodness sakes. And you're saying you can't love your wife? You won't love your wife? So what you learn from this passage is not only true of what we as husbands ought to be doing, but really everybody can apply this truth. We're to love sacrificially. Now notice the word love there. Husbands, love your wives. Agape in the Greek language. And a lot of times people will take the Greek language and they'll say all this stuff about the Greek words. And you have to be careful sometimes about drawing too great a distinction between the Greek words for love that are in Scripture. There are some distinctions, but you have to be cautious. When you really study it out, the truth is that in Scripture, a lot of these Greek words are often used interchangeably. Sometimes they're even considered synonyms. For example, in John 5.20, John 5.20, Christ says that the Father loves him with a phileo love. For the Father loves the Son. Well, on the other hand, the word agape isn't always used for some high, holy, divine kind of love either. Well, what do you mean? Well, in Luke chapter 11, verse 43, we're told that the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus says, loved agape, it says, the chief seats in the synagogue. For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Now, that was a very self-centered, selfish expression. And so, when you look at agape and phileo, sometimes they're often used as synonyms to describe various kinds of love. So, we do the same thing, right? I mean, you could say, well, I really love my wife. But I could also say, man, I really love a big bowl of chocolate ice cream. (laughs) Using the same word. Both in Greek and English, what, what informs us of the exact nature of that love? It's the context, right? I mean, it's, it's what I'm talking about. So the key point here in the passage that are, that are to be made here about his husband's wife for his, or husband's love for his wife doesn't necessarily come from the Greek word, but from the context of these Greek words. And the context here is the example of the love of Christ. That's the context. He tells us back in uh, Ephesians 5.25 that Christ loved the church. That's a constant theme throughout the New Testament. You turn back to to verse 2 of the same chapter. We're told to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as what? Christ also loved you. I mean, sometimes we become so familiar with with scripture that when we actually study it and we hear it husbands love your wives as christ loved the church yeah i've heard that a million times we need to stop and we really need to examine what it's saying we need to become acquainted with the expressions here here's what paul is saying paul says if you're in christ if you're a christian christ loved you and he gave himself up for you, he includes himself. 
It says, for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. In John 15, 12, the night before Christ's crucifixion, he tells his disciples in verse 12, this is my commandment that you what? Love one another just as I have loved you. So this template for Christ's love applies to all of us, but here he's speaking to husbands. In John 15, 13, there's a greater expression of his love. He says, greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Or in Galatians 2.20, when Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I mean, that's an amazing expression of the love of God, the love of Christ. That's the model for us, men. I mentioned before 1 John 3.16. He says, we know love by this. In other words, Here's how we really understand what love is. We know love by this, that he laid down his what? Life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There's a profound implication here in that little verse. We will never learn to love the same way Christ loves men until we really come to understand and grasp his love for us personally. That's how we come to know what love is. That's how we come to understand and grasp the whole principle of love, by seeing his amazing love for us. Remember in Luke 7, when Jesus has that dinner with Simon, the scribe and Pharisee. And he's there in his home and into his home, often outside observers would come into a special dinner like this. And this woman comes in who is simply called a sinner in the context there. We don't know anything about her. This is not the same account as Mary during the Passion Week, but she comes in and she's called a sinner. She's essentially, in the term of the New Testament, It means that she is a a woman of loose morals, possibly even a prostitute. It says, and she takes and she anoints the feet of Jesus with two years' wages worth of perfume of oil. Simon immediately thinks, if this man is really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. I know what kind of woman this is. And he'd tell her to get away from him. He wouldn't want any association with such a woman. And Jesus says, basically, you know, Simon, I want to ask you a question. Let's assume for a moment two people, two debtors, are forgiven a debt. One who owes a small debt and the other who owes a huge debt. Which of those do you think is going to love the one more who forgave the debt. And Simon says, well, I suppose it would be the one who has been forgiven the most. And he said, you're exactly right. This woman loves much. Why? Because she was being forgiven much. So don't miss the point of the story here. The point of the story is not that this woman was a terrible sinner and Simon was not. The point is she had come to grasp the depth 
and the profound nature of her sin. And therefore, she was able to deeply love Christ in return. See, men, when we come to understand the terrible depravity that resides in our own hearts, and we come to understand how we actually stand before God, and we understand the love of God given to us in Christ, then, only then, can we come to understand love and we can come to express that love to others, including our wives. The first step toward learning how to love our wives is getting a grip and getting a grasp of Christ's love for us. Well, back in Ephesians 5, the ultimate expression here of Christ's love for us was what? It says he loved us, speaking of the church here, he gave himself for her. Gave himself up for her. If you and I are to be examples of Christ's love, we must be willing to love our wives so sacrificially that we would even be willing to die for them. Are you willing, if necessary, to die for your wife? Most men would probably, sure, no problem. Reminds me of two farmers. They were talking one day, sitting on the front porch, enjoying an afternoon sit there out of the sun, glass of iced tea, and one said to the other, Fred, let me ask you a couple questions. Sure. If you had a million dollars, would you give me half of it? He said, well, of course, of course I'd give you half of it. He said, you know, as good of friends as you and I are, if I had a million dollars, I'd give you half of it. He said, all right. Let me ask you another question, Fred. If you had 10,000 acres, would you give me half of it? Of course, man, we're, we're such good friends. Of course, I'd give you half of it. Give it no problem. He said, all right. Bear with me. Let, let me ask you one more question, Fred. He said, Fred, if you had two hogs, would you give me one of them? And Fred said, oh, man, you know that I have two hogs. <laughs> you see, it's easy. It's easy to sacrifice the hypothetical. Sure, I'll die for my wife. But you can't serve her? But you're going to die for her? So let's not talk about dying for your wife. Most of us won't be asked to do that in this lifetime, more than likely. Let me ask you this question. Are you willing to live for her? Far more important question. Are you willing, men, to live for your wife? Quoting John MacArthur, he says this in his commentary. He says, if a loving husband is willing to sacrifice his life for his wife, he is willing, he is certainly willing to make lesser sacrifices for her. He puts his own likes, his own desires, his own opinions and preferences and welfare aside, if that is required in order to please her and to meet her needs. He dies to self in order to live for his wife because that is what Christ's kind of love demands. 
See, the Bible says that we are the leader men in our homes. But our leadership isn't about asserting our rights or asserting our authority. Our leadership is about what? Service. It's about giving up your life. Love isn't about getting. It's not about feelings. It's not about something you can't control just overwhelming you like a a bad case of the stomach flu. At its heart, love is unselfishness. It's self-sacrificing. It's an act of the will to meet the needs of another person. That's what love is. Biblical love is. And you do it solely out of concern for them, not because of something you'll get in return. I mean, Christ said it himself, right? In, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Christ, the creator, the son of God, he said this, I didn't come to be served, but to what? But to serve. That is our marching orders as husbands. Do you think of your wife as someone who's there to serve you? You got the wrong idea. That's not what the Bible says. You have misunderstood the whole thing. You have to understand you're in the place of Christ. You are not there to be served, but to serve her. Just like Christ Just like God, for God so loved that he what? That he gave. See, true love is about giving of yourself, about sacrificing yourself. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let me ask you a soul-searching question here today, guys. As I ask myself this, if I asked myself this this past week, Does your wife think of you as someone who is unselfishly, sacrificially serving her? That's the standard laid out in Ephesians 5. That's what we're told to do. How do we get there? How can we learn to develop that kind of self-sacrificial love for our wives? Well, quickly, a couple practical ways. These aren't inspired by any means, but just practical. A couple of ways, first of all, Determined to put her interest, her desires, and her needs before your own. That's what we were told in Philippians 2. That's what Christ did when he came down. Said he didn't do anything out of selfish, empty conceit, but rather in humility. We're to look out for the other person's interests and put them ahead of our own. Wayne Mack in his book, Strengthening Your Marriage, says this. One of the greatest challenges for us As men, when we do this, when to put our wives' desires and needs ahead of our own is when we get home from work. You know, we're tired. We just really want to plop down, read the paper, look at a book, turn on the TV. But our wives want to talk. (laughs) Or maybe they want our help with dinner or the kids. Or maybe they want to go out to eat and do some shopping or they want us to go with them. What are you going to choose? We've all been there. We've all made the right choice at times. We've all made the wrong choice at times. Are you going to choose what you want to do? Or are you going to sacrifice yourself for her 
desires. There's no way I'm standing here saying, oh, I always make the right choice. I don't. Ask my wife. She can tell you a million times. Blow it all the time. But that's not the model. That is, Christ is the model. We're to be like Christ. This is how we're to live. Well, secondly, and this really convicts me at times, put down the paper, turn off the TV, and just listen to your wife. (laughs) That's very hard for me to do sometimes. Sometimes I find my patience waning when I'm listening to my wife. And I think somehow by pausing the sports show or pausing the show that I'm watching or putting down whatever I'm doing and just listening, well, then I'm doing the right thing. But the Lord convicted me this week. You know, sometimes when you do that, you're not, you're not even listening. You just think you're doing the right thing. You're putting on a show. Inside, you're going, oh, I wish this woman would shut up. Just get to the point. Okay, I'm trying to be a good husband here. Can you speed it up a little bit? Just give me the end of the story, for goodness sakes. But you don't say that all the time because that wouldn't be the right thing to do. So you just, but it's in your head. You know it is. That's not listening. Thirdly, work to understand. This is crucial. This is hard. This is very hard. Work to understand what makes her feel loved. I mean, we've been married a long time, and I still don't completely understand this. You know, I mean, we can get in the car and drive over to Home Depot and walk around. I'm happy. Happy. Maybe buy her a couple of plants, think she's happy. Hey, you know, chalk that one up. Look what I did today. Look at this godly husband, you know. But you know what? I realize that's not really satisfying to her to go to Home Depot and go shopping in the hardware aisle. That doesn't do that. Now, she appreciates gifts. But that's not that important to her either. I mean, a lot of times I know that when we have the best relationship possible is when I just kind of stop and we just start talking about life, talk about goals and feelings and plans and things maybe I don't want to talk about with her. So you have a choice to make. You can choose to do whatever you want, when you want, or you can make a conscious choice to Say, you know what, I'm going to show love to my wife by doing the things that I know will cause her to know that I love her. We all need improvement in that area. That's the model. That's the goal. Let's pursue that together. Fourthly, another practical step you can take is decide to help her this week with maybe some of her normal tasks. Whatever they are. I don't know what your routine is in your home. Whether it's kids, groceries, laundry, whatever. Serve your wife. Remember what Christ said. I didn't come to be served, but to what? To serve. Figure out a way that you can practically help your wife this week before next Sunday. Fifthly, find out what her most basic needs are and seek to meet them. Find out really what's in the depths of her heart, what are important to her. Maybe that means you need to introduce yourself to each other. <laughs> Maybe you don't really know that. Maybe you need to get, dig down and understand each other a little more. 
I mean, how can you know that? Well, the first real basic things, you know, I mean, I, sometimes guys say, well, how am I ever going to figure that out? Ask her. Just ask her. Just ask her. She'll tell you. She may tell you a lot more than we want to hear, but she'll tell you. <laughs> See, in God's providence, we have a chance to celebrate, commemorate the greatest sacrifice. Expression of the sacrifice of Christ for his bride. You know, and, and that picture is, is in our marriage. It's a reminder. Last week when we celebrated communion, it's a reminder that our role as husbands is a picture of Christ's love for his church, that he gave himself up for her. My question today, guys, to all of us, how good is your picture? Father, we pray this morning that you would um, help us as husbands to do exactly what your word tells us to do. That we wouldn't be willing to make excuses. Lord, we say we're willing to die for her, but we can't simply live with her on a daily basis with understanding. It just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Well, we thank you for your wonderful picture that the death of your son gives us of the love that we should have for our wives. And we pray that if there's anyone here today who has yet to experience that love of God in their own hearts, maybe they don't know you as their Lord and Savior. Maybe they've never trusted you. Maybe they've never turned from their sin to the Savior. Lord, only you can draw them, convict them of their sin, cause them to repent, to turn from their sin to Christ and trust wholly in his sacrifice for them. If you're interested and you feel God drawing you to that decision, you simply cry out from your heart, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Show me the way I need to to go, how to live for you each and every day. Help me to put my trust in you for my salvation. All eternity weighs in the balance. And as husbands, we need to trust each and every day that we will love our wives in a way that is honoring to you. We're not going to do it perfectly. None of us will, but we can strive to that. And even in striving, hopefully, we will give someone who's watching a picture of Christ's love for his church. Pray for our fellowship time across the way. And Lord, we pray that you would just bless the food to our bodies and bless our conversations. Thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together, and we'll close with one last song.